This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people. We pay our respects to the elders past and present. Welcome to the snowsbest.com podcast. Diving deep into the emotions and experiences that mountain life provides for skiers and boarders from first-timers to elite athletes. With your host, Miss Snow-It-All, Rachel Oaks-Ash. Hello and welcome to the Snow's Best Podcast. I'm Rachel Oaks-Ash, aka Miss Snow-It-All. Today's podcast is brought to you by The North Face. Our podcast guest is Australian-born, now Canada-based film director and snow lover, Cassie DeColling. She's the name behind Precious Leader Woman, a documentary film that tells the story of champion snowboarder Spencer O'Brien and her journey on the international snowboard stage through both physical and mental hardships, while also discovering her Indigenous identity. The film was chosen this year for Melbourne's Biraranga Film Festival, and it also won the 2021 Banff Mountain Film Festival People's Choice award it's not the first snow related film cassie has shot though and here to tell us more welcome to the snow's best podcast cassie thanks rachel so awesome to be here and really wonderful to meet you virtually i know isn't it funny there's always connections through the ski industry somewhere turns out that cassie actually dated a friend of mine but let's not go down that route unless you want to of course whatever i'm an open book Are you? Are you an open? Because most directors, I find most people behind the camera are not as open book as the people in front of the camera. I think it takes two to tango. I don't know. Maybe you can give me an open book assessment okay. at the end. Give me a rating okay. out of 10. Okay, <laughs> You're going to be interviewing me this time. <laughs> okay. Awesome. 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 So, I mean, Spencer O'Brien, pretty amazing name, amazing snowboarder. How did that come about, this particular film? So Spencer O'Brien was a name that I knew as a teenager. Kelly Clark, Jamie Anderson were the three women that I knew of as an upcoming teenage snowboarder in Australia, snowboarding at Buller and Perisher and all of the uh, hills. And you would see these women in the like one page in a magazine, one page, because that was all they ever got. And in 2018, I moved to Canada and I happened to be working with the Sea Shepherd, the environmental conservation group on the island that Spencer lived on or was born on basically. And the reason that I kind of connected with her, or the, the, the weird thing was that on this island, it's an indigenous island and they have a cultural center. And in that cultural center, they have a hall of fame. And so you go through the exhibitions, all these phenomenal masks and artifacts and pieces of their history. And then at the very end of the exhibition, there's this, who came from Alert Bay? Who's from this island? And I saw this picture of Spencer and I was immediately transported to being a 14-year-old and also wanting to be amazing at snowboarding. And I just reached out to her on Instagram and said, hi, Spencer, I'm a film director. I've just landed in Canada. I'd love to connect and get a coffee and hear more about your story. I had no idea you were from Alert Bay. That's it? That's it. We we hooked up for a coffee and started writing her story out. Like so together we sat down and she told me so many things that it's funny looking back because there was so much, you know, like when you ask somebody, Oh, tell me about your life. It's like, where do you start? Where do you end? And all of the pieces in between. And I thought she'd only gone to one Olympics and she'd actually gone to two Olympics. I didn't realize that she was the first woman in snowboarding history to do a backside nine at X Games. Like 
there, there was all of these nuances and then it just sort of grew because Spencer then gave me, she said, okay, let's do, I'd love to do this film. Here's the list. I said, I want a list of like the top 10 people to talk to so I can learn about you from like an objective point of view. So friends, family, coaches, mentors, she gave me this list and the whole world just like blew open. I was just like, wow, like this is a crazy, incredible story, Spencer. She had rheumatoid arthritis. She had just the challenges of being a female snowboarder in in the, in snowboarding, a very male dominated industry, trials and tribulations with her health and with and then learning all about her culture. And then the culture piece was something that we kind of, she took me on a journey in the moment that we were making the film. And that was kind of what became unique about the story. But it wasn't the first time that you've actually touched on Indigenous filmmaking. Yeah, no, when I was, uh, it's, it's funny because it wasn't necessarily a choice. I've always been really intrigued by Indigenous culture and, and admired Indigenous peoples for their resilience. I won a scholarship with National Geographic and in, I want to say 2014 for like adventure filmmaker of the year. Mm. And as part of that, they, they took me to Arnhem Land to make a short film with people in Arnhem Land. And through that, then I became connected with another mob and sort of worked on and off helping facilitate workshops to help people there learn to tell their stories and use cameras for eight years. So it's just sort of like that thing, like you can't put the same shoe on every foot. It's all different relationships, different friendships, make different stories. Yeah, of course. Of course. Were you attracted to Spencer's snowboarding story more than her First Nations story? Or were you more interested in telling her First Nations story through her mountain story? I guess it's because I know the mountain story. You know, I know that's my world. I understand. I've been to X Games. I know the brands. I've seen the rise and fall of snowboarding. I listen to the podcasts. I'm like in that world. So that's the world where I could relate. And that's the world I could bring in the other snowboarders like Leanne Pelosi, Jamie Anderson. All of those girls could like be that fabric. And as I was very intrigued on Spencer's cultural career or cultural transition, yeah. I was also, I wasn't necessarily, I think, the main intention, but it just sort of unraveled at a time. So Spencer, when we met, had no sponsors. She had like kind of burnt out. She had just come back from a knee. Well, she hadn't come back. She had a knee reconstruction. She was you met her. A, sorry, Cassie, did you meet her after Pyeongchang or before Pyeongchang? After. She wasn't in like a glorious place, I guess. She wasn't at the height of her career. She, mm. she was an athlete that like it was kind of maybe at the end of her career. So she was having these huge reflections of what do I, what am I going to do next? And I remember there was like things I also found, like I found this interview that she had done with Red Bull and the guy on the interview sort of teased her about her Indigenous heritage and she was like deeply oh ashamed and conflicted. And so there was all these sort of subtleties of racism that made her hide her indigeneity. Like she wouldn't tell people where she was from for many years until sort of making the film, in a sense. Well, you really get a sense of that in the film. Watching the film, you do really get a sense of her reluctance originally through to her <laughs> embracement and yeah. how that actually and what that journey was for her. I, I found, I mean, you know, the Pyeongchang stuff alone, most people know Spencer from the Pyeongchang snowboard slope style where and the open letter that she wrote to 
FIS and IOC about putting female snowboarders in a very dangerous position with the wind and and holding that finals regardless of having had no qualifications and no practice runs and none of it and actually risking all of their lives. I mean, her, her letter was absolutely, and she was primed to get a medal. She was absolutely at that part of her career where she could have stepped right on in after all of the golds and silvers and bronzes in X Games and, and Fist World Champion, et cetera. I mean, that was, I was in Pyeongchang at the time. That was just, you know, on everybody's topic of conversation. It was really quite distressing. So when you met her, was she still angry about all of that? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone was. Any Regevic. Jamie, like who won the medal, was they yeah. were everybody was just gobsmacked at how that event even was able to take place. And, and I remember talking to Jamie, and Jamie sort of said, Yeah, it, you know, it was amazing that I won gold. And, but I was just so lucky that the wind dropped for the, yeah. the moments of my run. If I had been two minutes later, I would have been on my ass like everybody else. I think they said that, like, and if you were there, Rach, you might remember that, like, two out of the 16 competitors landed. actually were able to land on their feet. I think they had nine, nine, nine. runs that were actually landed out of 45, yeah. or there were 45 that weren't. Because if you have a final of three runs per competitor, which I don't think is what actually ended up happening in those finals, traditionally it would have been three runs per competitor. And I think there was like nine runs that were landed and that's it. And that yeah, was that's crazy. that didn't. It was just crazy. And that's because of the wind. How can you judge an elite competition when the conditions are not elite? I don't know, but I'm worried about the surfing competitions in the Olympics. Oh, it's a whole different. Well, of no, like no swell. I heard they're going, they have um, Chopo. Cho- I always pronounce that wrong. But the mm. giant freaking wave in Tahiti mm-hmm. on the uh, as a competition stage. Right. And if that wave, that wave can crush and kill people. Oh, okay. It, only a few people can even surf that wave and they want to put it in the Olympics. Well, that seems a little <laughs> don't they have a great time? Seems a little dangerous. But we we're not gonna get into the IOC. You know? yeah. yeah, no. Anyway, look, it was just it's just it's all contextual for the film because to watch this film, you don't actually realise so much that it is about snowboarding or about an Indigenous journey. I don't know. I didn't really have much expectation, to be honest. I just turned it on, watched it. And what I loved about it was it just had this really beautiful slow beat. And I couldn't understand why the intro and the opening and the the first, you know, 10 minutes had this just slow beat. And then the more you revealed of Spencer, the more I realised that was her beat. Mm. That was more about how she interacted with the camera. And the more, I mean, there was that one great, I'm not going to give the film away. It is fantastic in terms of learning about what she actually went through. And and most people don't realise that she had rheumatoid arthritis to the point where she almost lost her entire career, let alone a life. Yeah. Can you imagine being 24 and not being able to get out of bed? Uh, well, you know, I can crazy. for other reasons, but not for <laughs> rheumatoid arthritis. And I don't mean like alcohol hangover or actually, you know, having too much opera with some beautiful potential partners. I actually mean like depression and mental health. Mm. And and mm. surely she would have struggled with that as well through the rheumatoid arthritis and being an athlete that couldn't do what she wanted to do. There was one great moment where someone came in with the camera. I think it was her dad, wasn't it? And she said, I don't want to be filmed. I don't want to be filmed. Yeah. 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 That was her dad, like in the hospital bed. It was mm. actually after she had broken her leg. It was, um, That's right. I think, just it might That's have been. time. Yeah. Yeah. So you so had all this footage that already filmed. You, she gave you access to that. 
Yeah, she did. She yeah. gave me access to just kind of a little bit of a, yeah, that was like a whole thing, you know, like, hey, Spencer, okay, we're going to need a bunch of footage. And she just sort of opened up the gate, oh. you know. <laughs> the Dropbox folder just needed to constantly have more terabytes added to it. <laughs> I mean, if we get to talk to her, I'll ask her, of course. But why do you think she wanted to do that so much? I, you know, I don't know. I wonder, I think it's like there was this, there was sort of like a precipice of like, um, she was at a turning point in her career. So I don't know what her other options were at the time. I think she was like she was looking at potentially moving into a full-time job somewhere. So she was sort of really weighing things up in terms of if she was going to continue snowboarding. Yes, she wanted to ride backcountry, but it's a whole different game as well. If you've only been riding park and slope style, you have to build. And, you know, I don't know how the athletes, I guess I do know how people make money riding backcountry, but it's a different game. You know, you're filming it out there with your friends. I don't know how they make the money. I really don't. Janina Kuzma has managed to go from half-pipe ski Olympian to (laughs) um, big mountain ski mountaineer. Um, She's worked her ass off to do it year after year after year, of course, after course, after course. She was competing on the Freeride World Tour around the same time. I don't understand. I think you have to have the sponsorship first before you hit the backcountry in order to get that money. Yeah. So Spencer didn't. And then it was like, and that was kind of amazing. I think she just sort of took a leap of faith of the film. We had the resources for the year that we got the funding that winter was pretty good. And what we did is we made two kind of units. I was like, Spence, I'm story. I'm going to do all the story interview. And we were filming over COVID. So everything was remote. All those interviews are remotely done with individual video teams in different locations. The ones with Jamie and all of that. They're all the ones with Jamie. You're interviewing them or you've got a producer interviewing them? I've got. I, over, like over I've Zoom got a, of two people like on the ground with Jamie with okay, a camera gotcha. and I'm on like a laptop. Yep. So yep, I'm on gotcha. a laptop looking at them or I've got a live feed going on mm-hmm. and that she has a crew there filming it. So, and there was lots of coordination with that, like making sure that they all looked the same, that they were all lit the same, that all yep. the cameras were the same and then getting the footage from Austria or other parts of Canada or Colorado, you know, like coordinating all of that. So what we did was we had, I sort of took on that side mm-hmm. and then our team said, okay, Spencer, we teamed up with we Phenomenal. We teamed up with Robin Van Ginn, who was making a documentary series called Fabric. Mm-hmm. And we put money into that series into, to pay the cameraman, Ryan Kenny, who's phenomenal. Just like one of those guys who's like, I don't know how they do it. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? They do. They're carrying yeah. all this shit yeah. around in the backcountry. Yeah. I know. I know. What about Jimmy Chin, who filmed Free uh, Solo on the, the cliff with, uh, I mean, sorry, I can't even speak totally. about this. No, just, and he's, like, and he's got the gear on his back, on the yeah. ropes doing the same thing, but, oh, but with a camera on his back. Uh, unbelievable. Anyway, I think that's what the next <laughs> film I've been always saying is like, is I want to make a film on those guys. Oh, they don't get enough recognition. What a great idea. What a great idea. Yeah. Would you want to be filmed though? Do you think they'll want to be filmed about what they do? I think so. I think that a lot of them crave recognition. They don't always get the the athletes are always getting the recognition, you know, yeah, and they're they carrying are, but, all the shit, but without the without the filmmakers, the athletes are well, just gonna see just, what the athletes are doing. What Instagram? Yeah, uh, I know. A selfie, but, that's about it. Really? How do you think social media has changed filmmaking? Dramatically. I think it's awesome. I think like for me, like I was like, I sound old, but I was like <laughs> one of the first people doing 
internet videos, online yep. marketing videos, we'd call them. And yep. like, they would, they were so hokey. And, <laughs> and I, I, what, but what I know now is that I love how there's these categories, like there's these artists that are like TikTok and they're freaking amazing at TikTok or they're Instagram influencers and they're amazing. And what, it sort of helped me do was go, I don't want to work in that space anymore. I want to do nice. long form documentaries. I want yeah. to do feature documentaries. Yeah. So it sort of helped categorize filmmakers, I think, because you can't be a TikTok specialist and make a feature film because if you're spending three hours a day doing TikTok, you can't do like I the can't big- dance. I can't TikTok dance for three hours a day anyway. I can't do it for 10 seconds. <laughs> exactly. Or like whatever it is, <laughs> really. you know, Instagram. So <laughs> I think it's been really great. And it's allowed filmmakers to get their films out. Like Whisper Precious Little Woman is a great example. We had so many phenomenal female snowboarders in the film and their influence, like, you know, 100,000 here, 100,000 there. We put the film like up for a voting category or something mm-hmm. or for to watch the film or to promote it and mm-hmm. they, they just share it a few times and and the algorithms go through the roof i know it's crazy isn't it it's unbelievable so in terms of the reach that social can get you and the influence of having those numbers on your social accounts what i do love about your film and i think that skiers and snowboarders crave because it is human and we are human first, skiers and snowboarders second, is this narrative arc, this storytelling. I think we are so over snow porn and ski porn and board, you know snowboarding porn. I think we're just so sick of it and and we want to hear the stories of the mountains that or stories inspired by the mountains that relate to us, that we can relate to. Like we can all sit there and watch, you know, like Will to Fly with Lydia that was about her passion to to get back to the third or fourth or fifth Olympics and get her get her third medal or fifth medal or sixth medal and to get the triples, et cetera. And that was phenomenal to watch. And then the ones that Anna and, and Nat Siegel did about fear, because we all have fear, you know, whether you're standing on the top of a bunny slope at Threadbow or you're standing on top of a spine in Alaska, we're all petrified. And this, this film is so wonderful because how inspiring is it going to be for young women to watch, number one, how to overcome challenges, how to remain resilient. I mean, I just loved that whole thing of, was it Burton that still had the handwritten letter that she had sent them when yeah. she wanted to be sponsored Yeah, it was crazy. Burton? It was stuff like that that came out of the woodwork. Like the hand, she had written like her first sponsorship letters in pen, like to Burton and like, oh, to her other sponsors. And she had like the hokiest photos. Like I remember she wrote like, oh, I'm doing a chicken salad. Like I've nailed. And I'm like, what's the chicken salad, Spencer? She's like, I don't even know anymore. But, you know, like, yeah, it is inspiring. It shows what it takes to have ambition and drive. And I wonder sometimes in society we have a lot of like kids these days and I don't have kids so it's hard for me to be really objective but I think a lot of people are parents are giving the kids a bit of the easy ride and I really wanted to make that evident in the film with Spencer that yes her parents were support supportive but they stood back they weren't involved they weren't overbearing they weren't like you're going to be an influencer or you're going to be the best snowboarder it all came from Spencer she had all of that drive and ambition yeah, they weren't classic uh, racing parents, so to speak, which is probably what we'd call them in Australia. They weren't classic racing parents. No, the mum had never snowboarded. I know, isn't that great? 
This episode is supported by The North Face. The North Face fundamental mission remains unchanged since 1966. Just provide the best gear for athletes and the modern day explorer, support the preservation of the outdoors and inspire a global movement of exploration. Now, more than 55 years after its humble grand opening, The North Face delivers an extensive line of performance apparel, equipment and footwear. They push the boundaries of innovation so that you can push the boundaries of exploration. So what did you learn doing this film? What did you learn about yourself, about women in snow sports, about First Nation representation, about female representation? There's quite a lot of questions in that one it's question, a lot. isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just break um, it down to three words? Go for it. No, yeah. Tell us really seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we'll just start with snowboarding, women in snowboarding. I guess I already sort of felt like I knew from a distance what the issues were and what that story was, but I was really blown away at, I guess, how patronizing that industry had been to women in the past. And I don't know, it's like, has changed a lot now and is continuing to change. But I felt like seeing some of the old interviews that, say, Spencer had done, where she was ridiculed for her indigeneity by some of the broadcasters or, you know, media, yeah, media Kings. You didn't put that into the film though. Well, so then, okay, I'll go to the thing that I learned, which is the next thing I learned was like making a film to me. And I've always sort of believed this. It's not about just my vision. I really, really care about making films with people and not about people. So I had this scene in the film where this guy was taking the piss out of Spencer's indigeneity and she really was like, we can't keep that in the film. I just can't. And and her and I went back and forth on it and I was like, oh, but it shows so much of like how fucked up or how shitty the industry was. And I just thought to myself at the end of the day, if Spencer isn't comfortable with this, I'm not comfortable with it, you know. The story already shows that she had a hard time with, you know, proving who she was. We don't need to like I don't need to have a final say on everything. I don't need to put the final nail in the coffin. Well, I love that line. I like to make a films with people, not about people. That makes the world a difference. Yep. Which then kind of brings me to the next thing, which is working with Indigenous communities. And I know that's a really complicated space at the moment for non-Indigenous filmmakers. And I knew making this film with Spencer's Indigenous background that I need to do everything I could to make sure that it was an inclusive space. But also Spencer would say this and agree that she hadn't really experienced a whole lot of Indigenous stuff in her, in like, in terms of when she and her made the film, there was a first project she'd worked on where there was an Indigenous consultant or an Indigenous writer or an Indigenous uh, editor. Composers, didn't or you have Indigenous composer music, or con- yeah. Indigenous producer. Everything she'd worked on was through the snowboarding industry. So it was all just through the male lens, honestly. It was all mostly men had directed it and mostly white men. It's hard though, isn't it? I always feel that, I always feel as a, you know, a cis white female privileged person that it's very hard to know how to address Indigenous issues when they're not your issues, but they are everybody's issues because it's a global yeah. issue. And and I think in Australia, and we'll get to that because I want to hear the rest of what you had to say, but I do think in Australia, we don't have enough Indigenous representation within the ski and snow sports world. And, and I wonder if that's a socioeconomic issue or whether that is just an elite issue or whether it's an access issue. 
And I, I think often, it's all of those. Yeah, it is actually, isn't it? I really have wanted to, and maybe I'll do it this year, campaign, but I don't know if it's my thing to campaign. There are a lot of those runs, a lot of those ski runs at Mount Buller, at Hotham, at Falls, at Threbo. Why don't they have Indigenous names? It's a great idea. This is something I really, really want to drive this year. I just feel like it's something that I have a community that we can get behind and make those changes, but I need to find the right uncles and aunties within the mobs that are, are willing to take that on themselves because it's it's not me to instigate or me to create. It's 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 whether they feel that's worthy. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally, totally. I think yeah, for us, like I knew so before we started sort of making the film, I would need to in order to access funding, you need to have like a very fair, if not more than fair, indigenous representation. And especially for me being a white director, even though I came from the snowboarding background and Spencer and I over the form yep. over the course of the two years of going for funding became close, we still needed to have the integral kind of storyline come from have that Indigenous background. and This was to get funding through Canadian film organisations? Yeah, and in yeah. Australia. I knew from working okay. in Australia that you don't get funding if you're not Indigenous. You, and and I think an rightly so. You've got to find the balance. But I think it is case by case, and I do think that some of the red tape that's happening right now doesn't work for every story. What Do you have a particular example? So working in an Indigenous community on and off for eight years in Australia with my friend Regina Wilson, who I'd gone to. She's a phenomenal artist. She's an artist, the, Indigenous artist, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Regina and I have been close for for many years. I went over to her homelands in, I think, 2012 and helped starting teaching, you know, filmmaking, but also incidentally, of course, filming things. And she would then invite me to film certain things that were important to her. So her son passed away. She flew me up to Melbourne to film the funeral. When she was invited to open the show in Washington, D.C., she wanted me there to document that. When it came for us to try and make a documentary and try and get funding, I couldn't get funding from Screen Australia or Film Victoria. They said, you need to get an Indigenous director on board. So I called every Indigenous director I could find. There's a book called The Black Book. They should really change the name. And searched high and low for, I want to say, three months pretty much. And then I talked to a range of different filmmakers and met with different filmmakers, flew to Darwin and met filmmakers. And either they were booked out for two years or they weren't from Regina's um, nation or clan. They, or they weren't in th- that interested in the story because they didn't have a connection to her. Like, I kind of feel like I was the person to tell the story. And I couldn't get that to fly past our funding bodies in Australia. So then I self-funded the film. And yeah, I was because say, of that, the film happened. I mean, the film happened. And it's going to come out yeah. on SBS in July. But oh, I self-funded it. Yeah, yeah it's awesome. great. It's great. But it's Will you like, make money back from that though? Will you no. get yourself? Oh my gosh. Okay. No way. No way. But I know time is precious and she's in her 60s. And I also moved to Canada. And if I, you know, it just seemed like I had to do that. I had to tell, finish telling that story. Don't you feel as a, as a storyteller that there are some stories you just can't give up on? And even when you're not working on that story, you still come back to that story. You still come back to that story. And it almost feels like you have to give birth to whatever that story is, whether it's with someone's story or whether yeah. it's your story, because it just feels like the right thing to get out there. 
Yeah, I totally feel like that. I think it's the bane mm. of my existence. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the inspiration, right? But it's also it the bloody challenge. You've got to have that drive. Yeah, but, but you've also got to be lucky enough to have money to be able to continue, you know, like I've got friends who are writing books, but, you know, they've got money. That's They, they can go and write their books over however many long, it's how many months that they need to do it. Then I've got other friends that are writing books in their part-time, like at 3 o'clock in the morning when they get up super early because they have to work to fund themselves. So... But either way, both person really feels that that book needs to get out there and, and onto the thing. I wanted to ask you about your first snowboard film, though, to just throw another yeah. spanner in the works, because you went to Gulmarg and you did a Gulmarg film too, which was again about another culture, again about somebody else's story. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Is it still possible to watch it? Yeah, I don't actually know if it's still possible to mm. watch it. I feel like it's just dis- disappeared to Beneath a hard the drive border. somewhere. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, was Phil Barker was like, in that? Yeah, he was. Yeah. He was yeah. phenomenal. He was he is phenomenal. phenomenal. He is he? the guru Hotham. for yeah, he's the Aussie Gulmarg connection. That film really was uh, the biggest, biggest learning curve ever okay. for me. I went with very uh, – it's weird because I had finished film school, but I had so no clue what I was doing. But I had cameras – I went initially because my boyfriend at the time had a friend who was starting a not-for-profit there, bringing snowboards to Kashmir so the snowboard youth could learn to snowboard and got there and the whole thing wasn't it wasn't real. I think it was a scam, you know, no uh, snowboarders, there was no yep. program. And yep. so I was like, well, I'm not coming all this way and not filming anything. So I came across this kid, Raja, who told me he wanted to be a professional snowboarder. And so I ran with that. But I, it wasn't really until I'd sort of finished filming that I realized that Raja was like, his meaning of professional snowboarder was, I want to take Westerners out and take them tour guiding. I thought he oh, meant okay. like, I want to compete for Cashmere. I want to be the next Sean White. I want to be like Cashmere Sean White or like, you know, Danny Davis. So you were imprinting, you were imprinting your film director's storyline upon this boy. Yeah. And he yeah. and I just had this constant communication problem because I'd be like, <laughs> well, are you going to go train? And he'd be like, what do you mean? I'm taking these people out. They're going to give me a hundred bucks. And I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> when are you going to train, you know? <laughs> That's hilarious. How old was he? He would have been like 14 and I would have been like 22. Yeah, I don't think I'd go in Gulmarg with a 14-year-old snowboard guard. Yes, you would be surprised. I'd probably die. Who does? Yeah, Yeah. really? Oh, my goodness. Because there have been so many. I mean, just this year, you know, there was that awful avalanche and – there's been some horrendous deaths over there. It's a wild, wild country. It's a wild west. Gulmarg, isn't it? Yeah, it's a wild west. That's why I always say if I'm going to go, I'm going with Bill Barker. Or Adam Absolutely. West. Adam West is another great Australian yep. guide, but that that would be it. I mean, Bill Barker, yep. I'd, I'd hand my life over to that man. Hotham Ski Patrol. Yeah, yeah totally. Ski Patrol and all the stuff that he does everywhere else in Antarctica and oh, stuff. Oh, Antarctica, yeah. And, and you know, he went to Gulmarg, as you know, and trained everybody there in, in yeah. ski patrolling and avalanche and, and safety. And he's done a lot for Gulmarg. He really has. I agree. So did you interview him for that film? Yeah, I interviewed him and I remember interviewing him and he was just so sound and calm and just <laughs> said cool. it straight. You know, he doesn't beat around the bush, told us, you know, straight up that this mountain's like 
death trap and you need to be really <laughs> careful and mindful and that there's a bu- bunch of untrained hooligans out there. And that was the other flip side. I, I guess the thing that I kind of found myself with that story was like with Gulmarg is interesting because it's in this spot where it's a war-torn country or it's a war-torn, it's a village in a war-torn yes, country, yes, right? Yes. And all of a sudden it got opened up to backcountry snowboarding and it it was it's so confusing for the locals because you imagine the locals are extreme Muslims, so no drinking, hardly, no women around, n- like. But then all of a sudden, in come the Westerners, bringing in all the booze, bringing in the tabletop dancing, you know. And so it was. I wanted to sort of make a point of, hey, wait a second. If you're going into that culture, you should respect that culture. That was the other part of that film, and that some people really didn't like that. And well, I got criticized. Like that? I think that's so important. I got really criticized by Did people you? who, one person who was in the film who then called me out saying that I was trying to ruin their business because they were bringing Australians in. Uh, and okay. I bet I know who that is. Yep. It was a bit of a shock making that film, to well, be Well, you know, people have commercial motivation and people have yeah. cultural motivation. And the, the most successful businesses in places like Japan in particular and places like Gulmark are those commercial entities that respect culture at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the commercial entities that are just after the dollar, they're never really going to have the end up with the best reputation in the long run. Mm. They may end up very rich though, but certainly not going to end up with the best reputation. You know, you see it in Japan a lot and you have a lot of people. I have a Japan Facebook group filled with, I don't know, 10,000 people that ski and snowboard in Japan. And some of them get very, very, very passionate about how Australians behave in Japan. And then others get very passionate about, I can behave how I want in Japan. <laughs> and then I just sit back and, and just, I'm just there for the comments. <laughs> I'm just there for the comments. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God, what's going on? But getting back to Bill Varco, I've got a funny story about Bill Varco, which has got absolutely nothing to do with anything we've been talking about, but it's quite fun. Because as you describe him being, and Hilly was there actually, and, and a number of people, the guys from Labent and, and Eddie, DJ Eddie, and, and, um, oh, God, coffee, a whole. It was a good time. It was a good time. There was 10 of us. And I had been given the keys to Zerky's apartment in Hotham, the family apartment that he had, which, you know, had never had been renovated in its life and had a big old Argo cooker in the middle of the kitchen. And um, my partner at the time, he was a chef. So he showed up with like a backpack filled with the most amazing food. And we had all these guys, including Billy Barker. We had all of those boys. And I'm sure Belinda Trembath won't mind that I mentioned her either. Anyway, we were all there and it was quite a fun night. And, you know, it took a while to cook everything on the Argus. So we got onto the booze and we were drinking a fair bit. And a number of these guys, they don't drink normally. Like Bill Barker's not a big drinker. Neither is Buff. And, you know, we just kept drinking and drinking. We were quite on it. And then we all ate. We had this incredible meal that Hayden had made for us. It was incredible. And, you know, I don't know what time we finished. All I know is the next morning I said to Steve Cuff, who was staying in the apartment with us, I said, listen, Cuffy, I'm supposed to interview Jason Sawyer. That morning he's he's um, an athlete, a skier that has no legs. I promised him I would meet him today. But to be honest, if I ski, I'm likely to injure myself. I've drunk way too much last night and I can't afford an injury. I know you're going out this morning. Could you just meet him and take a couple of photos? That's all I need. And he's like, yeah, yeah, okay, no problem. Then I said, actually, you know, I wouldn't mind some footage. Perhaps you could film him. Do you mind filming him? Could you film him like this? And I stopped <laughs> anyway. He just looks at me and he's like, Rachel, you have to go do that. I went, oh, God, I better go do my own job. All right. So off I leave to go do my own job. Not happy about it. I'm like, I'll just do a couple of turns and then I'll come back in. Now I'm skiing under in Heavenly Valley underneath that chair. Yeah. Of course, I stack it. 
completely <laughs> under the chair, tore my rotator cuff or something like that, was lying there just going, oh, God, typical underneath the chair where everyone can see me. This ski patroller comes to get me because they have to, they just have to check because I had numbness in my hands or something. They just wanted to check I hadn't done a neck injury <laughs> or a head injury. Anyway, I hadn't. I was just hung over and, and, and I blame it on Cuffy not wanting to film my particular <laughs> job. Anyway, this guy comes up, support to the story, the guy comes up. And at the time, Bill Barker was deputy head of ski patrol. And the guy that comes to see me is head of ski patrol. And I look at him and I go, oh, look, you know, I'll be right. Everything's fine, you know. I said, look, I blame Bill Barker anyway. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, I was up drinking with him till God knows what hour. And he looks at me and he goes, you know, Bill's never missed a day of work in his life, ever. But today he did. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, you just just dropped him in. You can't. You can't diss Bill Barker. Yeah, no freaking I love Bill Barker. I mean, and he's the kind of guy that you can't just say, Bill, you've got to go, Bill Barker. He's the person that when you talk about him, you always use the first name and last name. Like I've got a friend, Margie Brown. I always say Margie Brown. I always say Margie Brown, never Margie. Anyway, that's by and by. I think think we're done here. Uh, We're not really. We could just like keep talking forever. But um, (laughs) I don't know if anyone want to keep listening. (laughs) No, no, no. I will just for him. Just for him. Let's do it. Let's do it. That's too funny. You should do um, an episode on Bill Barker, but not interview him, I interview will. everybody but, else. Oh my god, let's do that. He'll be and he'll just he'll be like, Don't do it, please don't do it, please don't do it. Because he's so humble, right? He's I know. So, humble. so tell me, um, what's next for you? Yeah, so I'm working on a documentary with the Canadian women's soccer goalkeeper, Stephanie oh, wow. LeBay. So mm-hmm. another character piece, I guess. What's her story? What's the bent on her story? Her story is one of mental health and overcoming. Oh, okay. uh, more sort of like her mental health and fighting inequality in the um, Canadian women's soccer arena. We can never get enough, never get enough yeah. footage on, and discussion on mental health no, and no. inequality in, in sports. We just can't. Enough of it. I know yep. it's so just needs to that visibility just still isn't there and women in sport it's just still not there like I went surfing this morning and I love it and I love men you know <laughs> I don't have a problem yeah. with men yeah. but I'm like why am I the only one in the water still oh really is yeah, that true like, I don't know because I'm not a surfer I, I don't get that and you know I always think and because I live on my own and I travel on my own and I work on my own and I come from a family of all women I mean except for my father but we're all I've got a lot of feminine energy in my life. I literally crave that male energy. So anything where I get to go to a lodge where it's filled with men, I'll just sit there and chat to them. And it's not because I want anything romantic. It's just because I want a different energy. Yeah. 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 I guess I'm the opposite. I work in the industry. It's so hard to find women in sometimes, you know, in the film industry or the surf industry. industry. In the film film industry. industry. I think we're doing better though. I think we're doing a lot better. Yeah. Like seriously. Much more, many, many more. I did a shoot last week and the guy said to me, the guy who owned the studio, he said, oh, this is the most amount of women we've ever had in here. <laughs> and it was just like a bit of a product of okay. me being a female and the cinematographer being female and us hiring a few women. So there was probably only seven women there. <laughs> you know, so, some people, sometimes people say to me, you seem to have a lot of women as your contributors. And, you know, that doesn't seem fair. You should have more men. And I go, well, you know, we've got a lot to make up on the past however many decades of having too many men in journalism and too many men in the writing and too many men in sports writing or, or, or travel journalism or, or ski writing. So I, I don't have a problem with having more women right now. No, totally. 
Not at, and obviously, I'm not going to employ people that can't write. So it's not, I'm not employing you because you have a uterus. I'm employing you because you can write. <laughs> so I don't want to check whether you've got a uterus or not, but that's a whole other story. I'm probably getting myself in serious trouble now. Do you have a website? You must have a website. I'll flick that to you. Okay, I'll add it later. Yeah. Um, that's all good. I'll add it in the blurb. Okay, so if you're listening to the podcast, it's in the blurb of the podcast, where to go to watch this film. And I would highly recommend you watch it. I found it really, really delightful. And I thought about it for days afterwards and that to me is great filmmaking thanks Rachel that's awesome thanks Cassie thanks for listening to the snow's best podcast remember to follow us on social media at miss snow at all and check out our website snowsbest.com thanks for listening to the snow's best podcast if you like what you hear be sure to review and subscribe via your favorite podcast platform like at miss snow at all on socials and hit up the snowsbest.com website for everything you need to know snow